We're going to pray, and uh, I want to encourage kids that are in here, just do your very, very best to be as quiet as you possibly can be. Imagine that your mom or dad or both are going to the grocery store to get food for you. It's spiritual food, and if you're a distraction, then they may not fill their cart, and uh, they need something to give you during the week. So I know the grocery store illustration may not be very good, because that may be where children are the worst, but hopefully kids can maybe connect with that and realize the gravity of what we're about to do. This is not a speech. This is a word from God for this people. And that means you. It means your family. So I hope that you can appreciate the gravity of that. I want to share with you, I'm going to pray, begin with prayer, but I want to share with you, sometimes, you know, the job of the preacher is a lonely job, and there's a burden oftentimes that the preacher feels that is something that he can't describe to anybody, he just feels it. And um, it's a combination of doubt, wondering whether people really care, fear, wondering if people are too distracted to get it, fear, wondering if I'm even qualified to bring this message, Um, even just real human stuff like... like you may have a Sunday like this Sunday where I'm especially aware that I want to do a good job. It's really human to want to get your approval. And I, man, I'm going to drag it out in the light, expose that human, frail, feeble thought for what it is, and we're going to pray about it, and then we're going to get our feast on. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> God, what an amazing, amazing privilege we have in these next few minutes to engage something that's so important. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes for just a divine attentiveness. I pray that the Spirit just grips us with the gravity of what we are about to eat. Lord, I pray that you'll move me out of the way, my frail, feeble, human disposition toward man's approval, that you will just destroy that in whatever it takes. And I'll be a fool for your sake. Lord, I pray that you will speak to your people this morning. I pray also, I want to pray for a fellow church and a fellow pastor. I want to pray for Dan Williford, Mineral Heights Baptist Church. Lord, I want to pray first for his marriage. I pray that his marriage is being invaded by the word that he's dining uh, dining on all week long. I pray that he's being disassembled and that he's being reassembled week by week to look like Christ and that he is in many ways a picture and a messenger of Christ to his family. And that begins with his wife. Lord, I pray that that ministry toward his family is something that also gushes over onto your people at Mineral Heights Baptist Church. I pray that that church is enjoying and savoring truth, walking with Christ, attentive to the Spirit, and in fellowship with you because, only because of the finished work of Christ. That they, that's their aim. Lord, I pray, too, that you'll guard us and guard them from ever having a spirit of competition, but that we can cheer for our fellow churches, fellow pastors, fellow elders, fellow families in other churches. We cheer for them and hope and pray that you'll do mighty things for your namesake at Mineral Heights Baptist Church. Lord, we thank you for the shared ministry that we have in this community. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in John 14. <clears throat> I want to just kind of give you a bird's eye view, kind of a map of where we're going this morning, just to let you know that <clears throat> you're going to need your Bibles this morning. 
I say that facetiously because you always need your Bibles up in here. We're going to start in John 14. I'm going to give you kind of five or six verses you can jot down on a little notepad or something so you can be ready. You can stick a doily in that page or a pencil or a french fry or whatever you want to stick in that page to mark that page just to give you a map of where we're going. John 14 is first. Matthew 7 will be next. Ephesians 2 is third. Fourth is Romans 8. Fifth is 1 Peter. There's one more actually. So six. And six is 2 Timothy. I'll be looking at other passages, but I want you to be able to have your eyeballs on those pages to know that it's not something that I'm cooking up. When you see that writing and you trust that it's something beyond even the messenger, that it's the, the message. So John 14 is where we'll start today. Before I read it, I want to just kind of give you a little picture of context. These John 14, 15, 16, and 17, if you'll notice in your Bibles, if you have red-letter Bibles, it's just a sea of red. These are like last words from Jesus to his followers, those who've left everything. Last words before he goes to the cross. He's going to the cross in a few hours. And it's sort of like a, a truth crescendo. It's like this sea that we've been swimming in for these last few weeks, and we will likely swim in for who knows how long. It's really truth like on steroids. I'm just trying to think of some truth with chest hair. This is some serious, serious truth we're engaging right now. I'll go ahead and read our passage, and then we'll climb into it. John chapter 14, I'm beginning in verse 1 for the sake of context. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These guys were likely pretty troubled. Obviously, Jesus is speaking to that because they've been following him for three years, and he's telling them, I'm going someplace where you can't follow me anymore, but you'll follow me later. And you just imagine what they're thinking. They're like, man, I left everything to follow you. What are you talking about? <laughs> if you go away, what are we going to do? We left our boats. Somebody else is now fishing out of that boat. I left my tax collecting booth. Somebody else is occupying that booth now. And oh, by the way, Judas, likely the most trusted among us, being the money keeper, has left the table as the betrayer. Man, they're troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. That's all we're going to engage this morning. These next couple of weeks we're going to take in the rest of that response, but today I want to just engage his first initial response there in saying, I am the way. I'll go ahead and pick up the last part of that verse it says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now let me acquaint you with just how important this is. There's a passage in Acts. I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to listen. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Listen, but Paul, excuse me, Saul, this is pre-Paul. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, 
men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This statement where Jesus answers Thomas is so important that it actually became the way the people of God identified themselves. It wasn't, hey man, what church do you go to? It was, hey, are you in the way? Hey man, I'm, I'm in the way. Let me tell you about the journey that I'm on. That's how important this message is today. What I've been recognizing is that this Sunday, in many ways, is one of the identity-developing sermons. Where hopefully you walk away and say, dude, I'm in the way. That's who I am. And then the right actions, the right responses, the right worship is, is, is an offspring, an offshoot from that sort of identity-developing truth. So man, today there's some gravity to what we're going to engage today. Let's start first in John 14, 4. <clears throat> he says, And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, you know how Thomas responds. We just read it, but I want to just ask the question. We don't have the whole story. So as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to climb into this. Or We have the whole story. These guys didn't. These jokers are sitting around the table, having left everything, and they're hearing him say these words, You know the way to where I'm going. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> is he lying to them? I know he's not, but I have to ask the question. Is he lying? And in fact, just a few verses before, he's speaking to these guys in chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? It's the same question that Thomas is asking. And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. These guys are confused. Just imagine not having the rest of the story. You would be confused too. They left everything to follow him, and he's now telling them he's going someplace. They can't go, but that they'll follow him later. And then he says, and you know the way. It's just weird. It's the word that I often see written in books that nobody really says, but when you see it in a book, you know what it means. Humph. H-M-P-P-H or H-M-P-H-H, that's a humph. Imagine being there and not knowing the whole story. Here they sit confused, and Jesus tells them, you know the way to where I'm going. So I'm asking a question. Is he lying? Because they're totally confused. He's not lying. He's not even close to lying. In verse 6, he answers Thomas's great question. We can't know the way if we don't know where you're even going. With Here's the, the answer. I am the way. That's all we're going to consider this week, that response. I am the way. But I want to keep this in mind before we climb into this. I want to keep in mind where he's going. I want us to re-engage just for a moment what the des destination is. Thomas's question, how can we know the way if we don't even know the destination? That would be like somebody saying, hey dude, I want you to meet me somewhere. And they're kind of being elusive about where. And then they say, hey, you know how to get there, right? You're like, dude, man, is, is it, is who's on first? I mean, what is this? Is Alan Funk going to come out and videotape this? I'm just really confused and I don't get it. He just told them, and he's telling us 2,000 years later where he's going. He's going first to prepare a place for them, and then second, he's going to that place prepared. He's going first to a cross, and then he's going to be with the Father. He's going to the place where we ultimately want to go. 
Let's put it in just real common terms. He's going to suffer, and then he's going to heaven. Man, I want to know this way. That's the place where I want to go, so I hope this destination means something to you. And you can tune in to, ooh, Thomas had a great question. Let's see what the answer is. What I want to do in these next few minutes is engage three things to have to do with his response that have very relevant impact on us 2,000 years later here in Greenville. So here's the first. His response there in verse 6. I am the way. First of all is the tiny little word, the The word the, if you paid attention in your English class, which you should pay attention in your English class so you learn how to study your Bible better. Some of you who didn't pay attention, it's redeemable. Trust me, you can go back and learn it. That little word the is called the definite article. And it means what it says, the, as in different from a. He didn't say I am a way. He said I am the way. There is absolutely no other way to the Father but by Him. Listen, it never ceases to amaze me how we still get this wrong. It never ceases to amaze me how Christ-professing people can still get this wrong. I didn't see the Larry King interviews. I don't know how long ago they were, but one was with Billy Graham and one was with Joel Osteen. Let me, before I continue, let me prepare you for something. I prayed beforehand that I would be really, really gentle today. <laughs> so I want to be gentle with these men of God, hopefully men of God. I trust that God has used them and will continue to use them, maybe to varying degrees. So it's not an attack on these men, but I watched these interviews where both Billy Graham and Joel Osteen waffled on this. It's like Larry King's pet question. So are you saying that you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus? I didn't see the interviews, but I found them on YouTube, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. Men that are reading this same Bible who are waffling on something like that. Man, we can't waffle on that. It would be like, were we to waffle on something like that, it would be waffling like when your toddler is playing in the interstate. You're like, well, you know, I'm just going to leave that up to God. I'm going to let God kind of discern whether they get smacked by a Mack truck or not. It's not a place to waffle. We are, when, when we are shouting and proclaiming this absolute truth that there is no other way, it's like saying, little Bill, get out of the interstate. You're about to get smacked. It's an occasion for absolute truth. It's not an occasion to go gray or to waffle. There is no other way to the Father but by Him. You need to know this. You can't be good enough. You can't be nice enough. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. If you think that's kind of an isolated message, this may be taken out of context. It continues. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. It continues. No one does good. Not even one. You can't be good enough. 
You can't be sincere enough. Even the best deeds done by the unbelieving heart is a selfish deed, and it makes much of the doer, and thereby gives God no glory. So it can be a good thing done with the wrong motives, and it becomes a bad thing. Romans 8, 8 tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You realize that? When you're apart from Christ, you are in the flesh. You are incapable of pleasing God. So the reality is we need another way. And the only way is to believe on Christ. It's to take our life and really, in many ways, just surrender it to be superimposed on His or underimposed. I don't know what, how we want to envision it. But coming together with this Christ, this one who has made the way for us. That is the only way. Because we cannot be good enough. And apart from the way, we are in the flesh. So we need another way. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Man, I hope people pay attention to these next couple of thoughts. Oh, man. Probably the most frightening thing for me in the last few weeks as I studied were these truths that we're about to engage right here. This singular way is so important, and so important, it's so important that we understand it. And what I want to tell you about this singular way is that this singular way is narrow. It is narrow. Look at chapter 7, verse 13 of Matthew. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many. You hear that? Just put most in there. Most will enter that way. And then, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Man, I'm telling you, that gripped me as I considered that This way, this the singular definite article way is a narrow way that leads to life. And then there's the wide way that leads to destruction. Every way that is not through Christ is the latter. For the width of that way is Christ wide. One Christ, one unit. Those of you who are studying math, that's seven inches wide. Inches is a unit of measure. The unit of measure for the way that leads to life is one Christ wide. Period. There's no waffling room there. There's no wiggle room on either side of that Christ. It's one Christ wide. Hear this loving, hopefully loving, gentle truth exposed. The faithful Muslim, the devout Jew... The committed Buddhist will not come to the Father but through Jesus. For that narrow way is just as wide as Jesus. I know it sounds unloving. People can repackage it and make it sound unloving. But it's not. It's just true. The way is as wide as Jesus. It's no wider. It does not matter how sincere they are. There is only one 
way. If there were other ways, would you have sent your son to be brutally murdered? If Jesus were just a way and just an option, (laughs) isn't murder kind of excessive? He is the only way. In his death, he became the singular, narrow way that few, very few, find. I want to show you how few. It's fewer than you may think. We're already right there in Matthew chapter 7. Look down at verse 21. This is where I really got startled. Chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do you see that word, many? Many will say to me, Lord. This is Jesus speaking. So in other words, many will call Jesus Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? I was thinking about other things that we can do in his name. We could deacon in his name. Didn't we deacon in your name? Didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I parent in your name? Didn't I attend the church every time the doors were open in your name? Didn't I give tithes and offerings in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Y'all, this way is narrow. This way is narrower than you think. Do you see what's happening here? People are prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. And he's saying many, not just a few, but many will hear, I never knew you. Man, that gripped me. As I inserted preaching in there, this way is narrower even than many people may think. I'm thinking about the context where Jesus is preaching these words. He's preaching in a context, and he's preaching to, and he's preaching among those who lived among some of the most devout people this world has ever known. And you know what they were called? They were called Sadducees and Pharisees. See, we have a problem when we teach and preach because we often present those guys in kind of a caricature and make them easy to dismiss. What a bunch of dumb losers. Pharisees and Sadducees were the upstanding, most devout people in their community. In their context. They were fine, devout men. But here's where they erred. In Matthew 15, it says they honored God. Listen, don't turn there, just listen. Listen to this, please. They honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. In vain they worshipped Him, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Man, I, was, I looked at that and I said, wait a second, they honored God? Wait, they worshipped Him and they taught doctrine? They did all the things that I'm saying, man, I hope I'm doing but they had the wrong message. They had the wrong thing that they're expressing and teaching. Instead of teaching the commandment of placing yourself on Christ daily, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifices, 
loving, your, loving God, loving neighbor. They made their own little law. And I'm about to show you how good we are at doing this. I think about this picture of honoring God with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. I had a quote that I memorized when I was in the Marine Corps that really helped me. It's by a guy named Giuseppe Garibaldi. I think he was an Italian troop leader. This guy was a tiger man. He said, I offer neither pay nor provisions nor quarters. I I offer hunger, thirst, force marches, battle, and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not his lips only follow me. This guy's talking about an earthly kingdom. He's talking about an earthly army. And he's got more oomph than many Christians do. Or professing Christians. And these Sadducees and Pharisees, these guys were totally devout. Totally sincere. But they honored with their lips instead of their heart. They honored God, they worshipped Him, and they taught doctrine, but they had the wrong goods. The reality is, is there is only one way in even the finest of religions, even the most exquisite, elaborate rituals of religion are not the way. Man, I don't want to waffle on this. I don't want this church to waffle on that. I want it to just be so clear as we enjoy that word, the, that he is the only way. These other things are not the way. They are man's design. Let me show you some pictures of man's design. Just listen to these passages. Even the most sincere man is not the way to the Father. And even the most sincere thing the man can do is not the way to the Father. Listen to these passages. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, I'm not up for God's way, the designer's way. I'll do my own thing. Proverbs 16, verse 2. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. So not only am I going to turn to my own way, but I'm going to consider my own way pure. (laughs) Man, I'm okay. What are you talking about? Any of you who have shared Christ with a friend or a family member or a workmate, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be able to identify this. Coming here as an unbeliever, maybe seeking, or maybe somebody dragged you here. He's thinking, man, I'm good. I got my own thing going. And you know what? I'm calling it pure. Proverbs 14, 12, excuse me, 21, 2, says every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So not only is man going to have his own way, but that man is going to think his own way is pure, and that man is going to think his own way is right. But here's what Proverbs says also. It says, 14, 12, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man. You could include pure. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Do you hear that? Man, some of y'all, I'm hoping you can identify with that. I'm I'm hoping some of y'all might be convicted about that because you're in here thinking, man, I don't need this. I got my own way going. And I promise you, you think your way is right. You think your way is pure. And according to what God wrote, that way ends in death. Your way ends in death. Believing in Jesus is the Definite article, singular way, eating his words. John 8 said that he is truly my disciple, will abide in my words. 
He'll be gnawing on him, feasting on him, eating his words, following his teaching, and trusting in him is the only way, period. No waffles. Not here today. Don't misunderstand me. He is the only, absolute, the, T-H-E, way. Secondly, he is the way. And we really know I don't miss savoring it today. He's the way, but he is also the way. The way implies journey. It implies movement. He didn't say, I am the block that you check by making a decision and doing some deed. Way implies that it's something that you're on. <laughs> it implies movement and journey like you're on the way to Dallas. Like you're on the way to work. Like you're on the way to run an errand. You've left some place. Get that? And you're going to some place. That's way. Like Jesus walked with his disciples, they were constantly on the move, and he taught as he went. They left their boats, they left their version of work trucks, they left their tax collecting booths, and they followed him wherever he led. That's why he could tell them and not lie. You know the way. You've been doing it for three years. In other words, the way is just to keep on following and to keep on going. Turn to Ephesians 2. I want to show you that you are in a way. I want you to know this just so clearly. Because you might think, some of you might think, realize, you may not know this, some of you, but we have folks that have come to Christ in the last year and a half, two years or so, sitting and hearing the preaching of the Word week by week. So I'm speaking to those of you who may not believe or those of you who may be believing thinly, like not even sure about where you stand, let me show you that you are in a way. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let me unpack this for you. Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, and initially he's writing to Gentiles, but he's going to refer to the Jews here in a second. Just imagine yourself being a Gentile, which we're pretty close to. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course, you could say way, of this world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the, the pattern or following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of, of disobedience. And Paul's saying, you know what, it just wasn't a Gentile thing too, it was a Jewish thing. Because he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, we being the Jews, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were on a way, but we weren't on the way. But then these sweet next two words that I love so much, they may be my favorite two words in the whole Bible, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, quickened us together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? Not for our salvation. It goes beyond that. If the gospel for you is just about your salvation, then that's a malnourished view. And it's going to send you down a, a selfish, man-centered path. 
Here's why he did that. Here's why but God jumped in there and arrested us from walking in the ways and the course and the way of the world. Right here. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the motive of the gospel. It's so much more than your salvation. It's about his glory and being a graceful, kind, merciful God. And listen what it has got. It's going on. Listen. Verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, just in case you weren't paying attention to the previous verses. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now listen, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Course. Way. We've been arrested. We've been quickened. We've been raised with Christ, seated with Christ, so we can go from walking in a way that leads to death to walking in the way that looks like good works. That's the way. And it is a journey. This picture of walking would have been so familiar to the Jewish mind. It would have been likely familiar to the Gentile mind too because guess what? They didn't have cars. They didn't have scooters. No motorcycles. They probably didn't even have bicycles. I'm pretty sure they didn't. So what they do to get everywhere? Man, they walked. So when Paul is speaking of you used to walk here, and he's saying now you walk here, he's painting a picture of the way that us Westerners who drive everywhere have a difficult time getting. It's called a Hebraism. It would be like an idiom. Like a common saying that people would have gotten. And it's the picture of faithfulness. It's the picture of belief. The way involves a walk. And guess what? Walking is slow. And nobody's going to make a movie about a walker. (laughs) Boy, that guy, I mean, even Forrest Gump was running. (laughs) Nobody's going to make a movie about a walker. It's not impressive. There's nothing spectacular about walking. It's like gardening. It's just daily. You get out there and you're about it. No cheerleaders, no dancing girls, nothing spectacular about the way. It's just a daily, routine, three-mile-an-hour walk. When God showed up 2,000 years ago, God, who could have showed up in the age of technology, He showed up 2,000 years ago and walked at three miles an hour in a three-year ministry. The way is unimpressive. It's walking. Daily, lived out in mundane and routine dailiness of life. And here's the third thing I want us to consider regarding the way. I want to consider the route. First was that it's the way. Second is it's a way. Excuse me, not a, it's the. (laughs) But it's way journey. And here's the third thing is that there's a specific route involved. Consider Thomas's question again. He said, how can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? We know that he went to be with the Father, but where did he go via Or how did he get there? He went via suffering. See, man, the Christian message can leave that part out. He went there via suffering. It is a waypoint on the journey of faith. Let me define waypoint for you. Some of you have a GPS unit or you've done some orienteering or something like that. You know what a waypoint is. You have a, where your beginning point and you have where you're going, the destination, but then you have th- little check marks, checkpoints you need to hit on the way. That's a waypoint. It's a great name, isn't it? 
You can put them in your GPS unit and you stop here before you go there. And in fact, this is a waypoint that you can't skip. This is a waypoint that is on the journey. And our way, if it is to be the way to the Father, is His way. And His way to the Father was via the cross. It is the essential, non-negotiable waypoint. It is characteristic of being on the journey. You know what? It doesn't make you on the journey. But it's part of being on the journey. You will suffer. He prepared them for this. Let me just show you a few things. You just listen. You can go ahead and turn to Romans 8 and just be ready to hear this in a moment. Or be ready to look at Romans 8. But let me show you a couple things while you're turning there. He prepared his disciples for this teaching. Think about the passage that we just engaged earlier where the way is narrow. And what is it? It's hard that leads to life. Hard? Yeah, hard. That's what it says. The way is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. He also prepared him with teachings like this. Chapter 9, verse 23. Don't turn here, just listen. Of Luke. He told him, he said, If anyone would come after me, anyone, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take in the weight of that. That'd be like somebody telling you to take up your electric chair. Take up your needle with poison and be ready to inject it daily. To follow me. He prepared his disciples for suffering. The next verse says, For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That sounds painful to me. It sounds like that's not going to be fun. It sounds like there's going to be suffering involved, doesn't it? And that is the way. Look at Romans chapter 8. Hopefully you're there. Romans chapter 8, looking in verse 16. <clears throat> the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay? We're talking about being a believer. Hopefully you're talking, you just put yourself in there. Your family's name, your name in there, own this. Hopefully we are children of God, and if we're children, then we're heirs. I like the thought of heirs, man. That means inheritance. And we're going to be heir of something from God. I like the sound of that. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering is an essential waypoint on the way. You can't skip it. You can't get a non-suffering route to the Father. That is the way, provided we suffer with Him. Now, I've got to tell you, <clears throat> I've preached that before. And before this day, really before this week, I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable about this. Because I thought, man, we live in Greenville. <laughs> Nobody's pulling off my fingernails for my faith. Nobody that I know here in Greenville has gotten their head cut off for their faith. Nobody's been imprisoned for their faith. And then I realized just this last week, I'm about to show you five ways that people in Greenville suffer. That five, five ways that people in Greenville who are on the way will go through this waypoint. So one of them is right here on this page. One of them should be familiar to you if you've been paying attention these last few weeks. If you've been here, chapter 8, verse 13, 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now I'm going to tell you right now, that's suffering. To put to death the deeds of the body is to suffer. Those of you who have been about this for these last few weeks, since we preached this, since we ate this as a, as a church, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who haven't are kind of going, oh, I don't know, that doesn't sound like suffering to me. But to murder the things that come natural in you, to actually assassinate them, to murder the things that come natural in you, the wide way things, the easy way things, the things that come natural to you, that is suffering. And if you've been about it, you know what I'm talking about when I say this is the suffering way. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's a way that we can suffer in Greenville. Here's a second way. Turn to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 3. Peter writes to believers. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's a good question. Just think about that for a minute. It's almost like he's saying it like, if you're going to do good, who's going to harm you? Just imagine, look, wives, you're going to bless your husbands with some, like his favorite meal. And he's going to come home after a hard day. It's unthinkable that he could not be just overly grateful. He could not write a song about you or maybe a poem. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? You kidding me? In the workplace? Man, I'm going to do the right thing? Who is there to harm you? At first blush, you're reading that going, yeah, that's right. That seems unlikely, doesn't it? But then he goes on. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake or goodness' sake, you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Listen. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Second way we suffer in good old safe Greenville is we suffer when we do good and when we want good. And I mean his biblical definition, not what we think is good. Because remember, there's a way that seems right to man that leads to death. We're talking his definition of good. When you do his definition of good, and when you want his definition of good, you will suffer. And you are doing good when you give an account for the hope within. And then when you suffer, not if you suffer, but when you suffer and are slandered, that's the suffering way. That's that waypoint you got to go through. Right here in good old safe Greenville. That's the suffering way when you are zealous for what is good in a world that is zealous for what is bad. You will suffer. The next, also in 1 Peter there, chapter 4, verse 12. 
It says, beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Wives, don't be surprised when husband comes home and doesn't write a poem about you for doing a good thing. Workers, don't be surprised when people don't applaud you for doing the right thing in the office. Don't be surprised when that trial comes upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. <laughs> That'll define your suffering. If you're boneheaded, meat-headed and you just sinned and call that suffering of Christ? No, that's not it. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We suffer when we are insulted for our faith. Which if you're living it out loud, even in Greenville, I will tell you that it will happen. It will happen. Here's a beautiful one. Second Peter, or Second Timothy. This one snuck up on me. I'll let you turn there. Second Timothy chapter two. This is the next way we can suffer in Greenville. This one snuck up on me Wednesday night. We we're having a, a Genesis Bible study. Scott was teaching, and Scott mentioned a passage that Bud Jones pointed out to him. This is a great picture of community enjoying truth out loud that finds a, a home. Scott shared this passage, and it just blew me away. I just never read it this way before, but I was tempered to it because I was thinking about the suffering Christian in Greenville. And I want you to get this. This is probably the sweetest picture of this whole sermon of our suffering, anyway, in Greenville. It should be encouraging to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Share in suffering... Remember, that's, we're on the suffering way, so it's appropriate that he's writing to another person on the way. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Okay? There's not a whole lot of information there, but the next verse explains to us what he's talking about. It says, No soldier, no suffering soldier, gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What he's saying there is to suffer as a good soldier of Christ is to not get entangled in the civilian pursuits. Soldier. What that's saying to us is that it is suffering to not get entangled in the cares of the world. I never saw that as suffering before, but it is suffering. It's suffering, consider this, it's suffering to not get bogged down in the stock market. Some of you who just gravitate that way. <laughs> it's suffering to not go there. It's suffering to not be glued to CNN. Some of you news junkies. It's suffering to not be glued to ESPN. Some of you sports junkies. It's suffering to not be glued to Rush Limbaugh. It's suffering to not get consumed with governmental decisions. It's suffering to not get caught up in workplace drama, to not get entangled in neighborhood quarrels. It's suffering to not be consumed with hobbies and food and shopping. That's a form of suffering. That's suffering as a good soldier. It doesn't seem like suffering, but that's how we suffer in Greenville. Satan's going to make it look small and insignificant and innocuous. Look that word up. 
But man, it's not. We are bombarded with these things all day long, and it's suffering to not get caught up in them or whatever version of them you may have. It's suffering. For me, it's food, man. <laughs> I confess before, I gravitate toward food. I medicate with food, and it's suffering to not medicate with food. Because you know what? I'm hungry. It's suffering as a good soldier of Christ. It is the suffering way. Last way I'll introduce to you is that we suffer when we bear one another's burdens. Share a passage with you. You don't need to turn there because you've turned everywhere I wanted you to turn, but I just want you to listen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, To bear one another's burdens and to so fulfill the law of Christ. It is the law of Christ to bear one another's burdens. When you hurt with others, I will promise you this, there is very real pain in store. Very real suffering. This has been the most prominent pain for me in eldering. Steve Mayo and I have talked before in the last couple of years. He's been eldering two years and the rest of us a little bit longer than that. And Steve was like, man, I had no idea. You have no idea what it's like to sit and talk with people where their marriages are crumbling where they're walking away from their faith, where they've lost a loved one, where they've lost a child. And you will suffer in Greenville when you bear the suffering of another. When you come alongside them and you hurt with those who hurt and you weep with those who weep, you will suffer. And you know what? That's part of the journey because we're on the suffering way. If you think I'm opting out of that, no thanks, I'll go the no suffering route. There is no no suffering. Well, there is, but that leads to destruction. The true way involves suffering, and this is one way we suffer in bearing one another's burdens. Weeping with those who weep and hurting with those who hurt. And I'm going to take it to a whole other level with this last thought. This is a promise to those of you who want to do good, this is a promise to those of you who bear one another's burdens, who want to weep with those who weep. Just listen to this, Psalm 35. Don't turn there, just listen. Scott pointed this out to me this week and it blew my mind. Listen, David writes, he says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. That's a prayer that many of you may have prayed. Lord, <laughs> fight this battle with this dude in the office or my boss or with my wife. Some of you may have prayed this prayer before. He says, Without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Malicious witnesses rise up and they ask me of things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereaved. Listen to what he says next. Those of you who hurt with those who hurt, those of you who bear one another's burdens, listen to what he says. He says, But I... When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. When they were hurting, man, I was hurting with them. When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. I heard with those who hurt, but at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered like a swarm. 
They even gathered people that didn't even know me, is what he says next. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. That's the suffering way. It occurred to me as I read that, that likely the same mouths that ate loaves and fishes that came from our Lord were the same mouths that shouted, Give us Barabbas. I got a promise for you. For those who bear one another's burdens, for those of you who hurt with those who hurt, some sheep bite. I promise it. Daddies, you may be looking at your youth and thinking, what has happened? But it's not grounds to quit doing good because you're in the suffering way. That's suffering. To press on, dads, as your kids devour you, as they gather others to devour you and mock you. That's part of the journey. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It's the suffering way. When we think of suffering, we imagine martyrs burned at the stake or people getting their heads cut off. Suffering isn't getting your fingernails pulled out. Suffering is a husband... See what I mean? Listen to this. Let's re-engage this. Suffering is a husband dying for his wife like Christ died for the church. Man, those of you who are doing that, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who aren't have no clue. When you were betrothed and married, you started full-time ministry. You may not realize it then. And it is suffering to be on that journey. It's a sweet suffering that has incredible blessings. But it is suffering to die daily. It is suffering for a husband to die for his wife like Christ died for the church. It's suffering to not buy that thing you want so bad that you can afford that would just amount to amassing more junk. It's suffering to not get bogged down in the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's suffering to live like a good soldier of Christ, lean and mean and ready. It's suffering to not build a bigger barn to store your hay. It's suffering to bear another's burdens even when they bite you. That is the essential waypoint on the journey. It's part of it. Don't be surprised like Peter said. Don't be surprised. It's the essential waypoint on the journey. Be ready for it. There's so much to consider on this way. Just those two words, and well, the four words, I am the way. He made the way as a trailblazer, and He became the way as the actual journey. He prepared the place, and He's the destination. He is the only way. And it is a journey. You are leaving something to follow and go to something. And an essential, essential waypoint on that journey is to suffer. That's what it means to be on the way. That's what we're about as a people. I hope 
and pray that engaging a truth like this is for you as it is for me. Identity developing. You going, dude, this is just who we are. I'm suffering for, for this? No duh. Are there any other ways? No, sir. Is it a journey? Yes. Step off. Forward. March. That's who we are. Lord, I pray with everything in me, I pray this is who we are. Lord, I pray that as people kind of gather their stuff to get ready to leave, that they can just stop for a minute. And just consider that we are speaking to our Creator. Lord, I pray that right now that we can recognize that we are speaking to our Creator who has made a way where we had no hope. Who trailblazed away and paid a price that we could not pay. Lord, I pray the gravity of that hits us and that we see this narrow way that few find is just as wide as Jesus and that you find us squarely in Jesus, feasting on his words, fellowshipping with him, walking with his people, serious about this moving journey. And Lord, I pray that you will just work in us a readiness that when we suffer, that we are fellowshipping with our Christ. And that we are engaging that essential waypoint that's on the journey. Lord, I pray that this sermon, yes, even one sermon, that this sermon can be identity developing. We can see ourselves as in the way. Praying these things in Christ's precious name. I hope that uh, messages like this create kind of a desperation in you and a helplessness. That's a good thing to be desperate and helpless. It is when you're desperate and helpless and you cling to Christ because you're really low and worship is really big and grace is reaching low and all the ingredients are there for really good worship. I don't mean worship in song. I mean worship in life. I hope it creates an, an identity, a helpless, dependent, needy people. It's not making much of them, but it's making everything of Christ. I hope that messages like this maybe make you helpless and dependent. They should. As we clamor, that's another word that may be weird to you, but clamor, look it up for the way as we cling to Christ, as we are tethered there by His grace and mercy. Man, this journey is no joke. Being on this journey is not just another activity on your daytime or, or your quicken, not quicken, your outlook schedule. It is the schedule. Everything else falls within that. If you have any questions about today, if you need to talk with anybody about what you've heard today, and I hope you see me as approachable and hope that you see the other elders as approachable. Brad was up here earlier. There's Steve Roberts right there, Steve Mayo right there, your teachers who taught your class, 
And maybe some of you who are in a family where your shepherd's sitting right next to you, turn to your shepherd and say, hey, dude or dad, I need some answers. I need you to help me with this. I'm not sure that I'm in the way. Man, engage each other on these matters. This is worship. That's what keeps this from being terminal. A couple of uh, announcements just for this coming week. First of all, we were going to have um, a men's thing tonight, a Wrangler night, but we are actually kind of rained out. It's not raining right now, but it's rained so much where we have our campfire that we're just going to bump that a couple weeks. So I'll let you know when that is. The Titus ladies will be meeting this next Sunday night. So it'll be the Sunday night after that that the men, the Wrangler night, will meet together and at a campfire out at the Ots Woods. Uh, second thing is next Sunday we will not be meeting here. Yeah, next Sunday is the last Sunday of February. We'll actually be at Greenville High School. So I encourage you, you know, obviously, if you forget and you come here, just come on over there. It's okay if you're late. But we're going to start at 1030 because we have a kind of a limited schedule of when we can rent the building. So we'll start at 1030. We'll be out of there by noon. We need your help in setup and breakdown. We're trying to be really intentional about stepping away from this building because this building's not the church. This building's just a building. We're the church, and we're agile and mobile. And man, church goes where we go. So we're going to go to GHS. We may engage the neighborhoods around GHS, or we may just engage some neighborhoods that we haven't engaged in our community yet. On Saturday morning, more information to follow there. We'll be passing out flyers, letting them know that that's where we're going to be and what we're going to be doing. So I encourage you to come out as families when you get that information, to come out as families and engage those neighborhoods with this. Lastly, um, tomorrow night, we're going to start a Bible study here at 7. Is that right, Brandon? 7? It may move to 6. I think Brandon, Brandon Barker is going to be teaching it, but it's, it's going to be really an initial study on how to study the Bible. And it may turn into an actual study of a book, but it'll, we'll just see where it goes. Initially, it's for sure going to be a study that teaches you how to study. You need to learn how to read your Bible and how to glean truths from them. It just doesn't come natural. You need to learn those things. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, through a guy like Brandon, God will hopefully use times like tomorrow night to help you unpack the goods, unload the grocery cart. Okay, that'll be at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. I think initially, <clears throat> maybe not tomorrow night, maybe tomorrow night will be kind of a get-to-know-each-other, but in the future nights, there'll be child care, and there may even be some food, like pizza or something. We'll just kind of see what happens there and see how that unfolds. But that's tomorrow night at 7. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. <clears throat> Lord, we are grateful for the time that we've had together in the Word. We're grateful for the time that we've had to express our gratitude back to you, our marvel at grace in song and in fellowship. Lord, I pray that you found us a sweet aroma, an aroma that smells like Christ, aroma that smells like sacrifice, faithfulness, Lord, I pray that you'll find an aroma that smells like helplessness, neediness, complete dependence. And that in that, that we'll be small and unimpressive, but that you will be so enjoyed. We count it as a sweet privilege to follow you, Lord, in the way. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.